Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Today, we're more distributed and more digitally connected than ever before. Digital communications are now the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smarsh, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smarsh enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business-critical signals in more than 80 digital communications channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smarsh portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smart serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. This is not just about your reputation and your standing with your regulator. It's about your reputation and your standing with your with the wider market and indeed your customer base if you get this kind of thing wrong. Today's guest lays out the case for more concrete rules around ESG investment and for the UK government to deliver on the regulatory commitments it has made to bolster the UK market for fintechs. Chris Willard helped to shape the UK regulatory landscape as the former interim CEO of the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, before moving to EY, where he now advises financial services leaders, central banks and governments on financial regulation as a partner and chairman of EY's global regulatory network. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. I'm fine. It's busy out there at the moment, but it's all good stuff. Yes. So it's obviously, it's been a very busy few years for those working in and advising the compliance industry. And aside from navigating the implications of Brexit and the pandemic, and more recently, the regulatory repercussions of war in Europe, there's also been an increasing focus on environmental, social and governance matters, increasing regulatory focus on crypto assets and plenty more in between. So in amongst all that, what are the top regulatory concerns amongst your client base currently? So EY, we work across the whole of the financial services sector, really. So so banking, capital markets, insurance, wealth and asset management. So pretty much everyone in that financial services space. Plus then obviously a range of clients in some of the newer emerging fintech industries as well. So I think if you were to try and summarize what's, what are the kinds of issues that are top of mind for people at the moment, I think there's a few. So there's some really big strategic underlying questions and the biggest of those i think is is esg and in particular the climate component of that not just the questions around directly around regulation but also amongst boards i think a, a sort of a step back that says everybody clearly wants to commit towards climate change but actually strategically how do they really think about that being very real for them for now, particularly as more regulation is coming to the area too. So that's a sort of big sort of macro kind of topic. Clearly, the economic circumstances that we find ourselves in post the main waves of COVID, hopefully, and what does that recovery look like? 
the fact that clearly there are inflationary pressures in the wider economy. What does that do to business models? What does that do to firms in terms of thinking about some of their regulatory stance sometimes? Again, um, one of the bigger, wider topics, if you like. And then clearly there are some things that are top of mind for either particular sectors or particularly because of a point in time. So clearly, as you've just alluded to, more in the Ukraine and the sanctions regimes that are around that are clearly an issue for a very large number of firms and, and, and players in the market. And if you look closer to home within the UK itself, topics like the new Financial Conduct Authority consumer duty are also causing uh, a lot of people to look in at their existing practices and, and think about whether they need to improve them as well. Okay, so there's a lot to unpick there. And, and so just starting with the ESG point, which you raised initially, and you mentioned that new regulation was coming down the tracks. So obviously, in the UK, we've got new rules due to come into force from mid-2022, which will make ESG reporting mandatory for all private UK companies and limited liability partnerships with more than 50 employees and turnover greater than 500 million, along with all publicly quoted UK companies. But there's also, of course, draft international standards aimed at preventing mm. companies from fudging their ESG credentials as well. And those are coming down the track. How is all that changing conversations around ESG in the financial services space? So I think to some extent they help a bit. Actually, in fact, they help quite a lot, I think, begin to advance the agenda because I think what you can see is that broadly speaking, there have been some firms that have lent very, very heavily into the ESG agenda, particularly the climate agenda, and sought to both seize opportunities from it, but also try and get to a gold standard for themselves, as it were. There's a lot of other individuals, though, quite understandably, are holding back, waiting for what the regulation actually says, a bit nervous about perhaps being sort of first mover in particular markets. And so the government taking action here and then the wider work around international standards as well, I think that's a really positive role that regulation can play in terms of making the market go forward together. Okay. How worried are you about the the warped incentive to greenwash in amongst all this regulatory pressure to take ESG more seriously? And how seriously is the industry taking the regulatory pressure to stop doing that? So the question of greenwashing is clearly one that exercises an awful lot of firms in the sense that at the moment, in most jurisdictions around the world, we have a gap. So we have an aspiration from government and regulators to have standards in this space. We have market pressures for more green products and an investor demand around those things. And yet, because most of those standards and rules are not yet set in concrete, firms find themselves in a position where they've got really two choices, either to try and set their own taxonomies, to set their own clear disclosures around ESG and then participate in the market or to hold back a bit until those rules become clearer. And I think no sensible firm wants to find itself in a position where it's held out a product as being green and then subsequently, because of the way the rules develop in, in that particular jurisdiction, they might find themselves accused of greenwashing. I think this is a sensitivity that many, many firms are really acutely aware of. This is not just about your reputation and your standing with your regulator, it's about your reputation, your standing with the wider market and indeed your customer base if you get this kind of thing wrong. Okay. And you mentioned navigating the post-COVID recovery as one of the challenges that's now top of mind amongst your client base. 
what could or indeed are financial services uh, firms doing to help the smaller to medium-sized companies navigate the challenges that the COVID pandemic has, has raised for them? And what can the regulators do to support financial services firms through that? Are we at a point where the regulators might need to consider some element of forbearance? So I think the answer to that question varies quite a lot. But I think there's a number of components you can see in common, not just in the UK, but, but across a number uh, of parts of the world. So, I mean, the first is the measures taken by governments around the G20 in particular to deal with the immediate effects of the pandemic, particularly on the small business sector. So whether that was temporary loans, whether it was furlough, schemes like that, have been incredibly effective at suppressing insolvency and disruption in that particular sector in the short term. But it's also fair to say that in most parts of the world, those schemes have now been largely withdrawn or ramping down quite considerably. And what you can see, certainly in a number of European countries, is a picture where you know, the, the level of insolvency is beginning to rise to some extent back towards what you might call, quote, normal levels, uh, and possibly even a bit beyond that, given that so much disruption in that sector has been suppressed in the last couple of years. Now, what that means, I think, is a real challenge for financial services firms, particularly banks, in terms of how do they think about their own credit risk and their own exposures. And many are obviously taking that incredibly seriously. Boards are taking that incredibly seriously. But it also does place a challenge, I think, upon a number of institutions to really think about, okay, how do we provide our own assistance? How do we get in there early before perhaps distress is too high? And how do we manage through our own small firm population during this space? Now, in terms of sort of wider forbearance. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of forbearance already in most uh, economies, whether that's around things like mortgages in the UK, or whether that's around the repayment terms for uh, small firm debt. I mean, obviously, the UK government's got its so-called pay-as-you-grow scheme designed to spread some of the payments over a period of time for those small firms. So I don't think you're necessarily looking at direct intervention with banks around how they do forbearance outside of what they would normally be expected to do. But I think there is definitely a regulatory and a government expectation that particular care will be taken over that subject when you're thinking about small firms, and many of whom will have potential vulnerabilities in the next uh, few months ahead. And if you overlay on that, the fact that economic circumstances are changing, you know, inflation rising, interest rates rising, all of that says this is a space where I think governments and regulators will be alert to, to, to problems in that particular market. And then the final thing I think is, is, is probably worth reflecting on in this space is ultimately how to get as many firms through what has been the wider effect of the pandemic just plays into the, if you like, the S in ESG. We've just been talking about ESG. That social component, I think in many countries now, is not just being defined in terms of certain practices. For example, in the EU taxonomy, talking about things like your union relations and those kinds of things but actually more about how do firms deal with these kind of big cross-society questions when they arise, as they clearly do at the moment. Are you seeing conversations change within the, the, the high levels of financial institutions off the back of that increased focus on the social element of ESG? So I think you can look at actually what's happened recently around the events in Russia and Ukraine, and, it, and in particular, how far... Has it been a matter of firms responding to formal sanctions or how far has it been a matter of firms actually taking voluntary actions over and above 
the strict letter of those particular sanctions in terms of how they conduct themselves and how they conduct their business. So I think this is something that's going to be a pretty steady drumbeat, the SNESG, if you want to call it that, for the next few years at least, I think. And we've already seen the EU start to sketch out what a, a taxonomy could look like there, moving towards a set of standards there. I think you'll see a num number of other major economies start to do the same in the not too distant future start to do the same in terms of mirror the eu's taxonomies in terms of else. working out <clears throat> working out what they think a, a, a taxonomy in the context of their own society begins to look like right okay when you were talking about the top three concerns amongst your client base you also mentioned sanctions compliance being obviously up there off the back of increased sanctions passed as a result of the russian invasion of ukraine how mature is the sanctions compliance space in the financial services sector, if it's possible to summarise, because I imagine that's quite a varied picture. Are there any kind of particular challenges that you've noticed amongst your clients in relation to sanctions compliance specifically? So I think the first thing that's worth saying is the degree to which I think any firm that's having to think about, deal with the wider sanctions regime takes that incredibly seriously. It is very, very high, no matter where you are within the financial services sector as a whole. And I think the picture you can see both here and internationally is firms that are engaged with that just really stepping up to the plate, knowing that this is something they've got to do, something they've got to do at speed, and a real concern to make sure that they're, they're complying properly, given the circumstances in which the, the, the sanctions have come into force. I think what will get a bit more complicated if we look at history as a bit of a guide around sanctions is over the coming months then, where do secondary sanctions kick in? How does the sanctions regime evolve? And that will be something that people just have to kind of keep pace with. Inevitably, it will throw up some complexities in terms of interlinked transactions and those kind of things, questions around disposals and all the usual things that you would expect with the sanctions regime. Bearing in mind, I think the package that we have at the moment between combination of essentially EU, US plus, you know, various NATO allies like the UK and Canada and others, it's a pretty comprehensive set of sanctions. But at the same time, of course, that set of sanctions regimes do not apply across the world uniformly. So that obviously creates complexity for firms to navigate. Mm -hmm. Okay, so something to watch. When we spoke in late 2021, you predicted that a major cyber outage could cause significant disruption in markets. How concerned are you now and your clients about the risk that a major cyber attack hitting the UK financial services sector in 2022? At the time, we, when we talked about it, we were talking in the context of what are the big black swan events that if you had to pick some, you would worry about. And personally, I still would, would worry about that. Clearly, we are in a world where whenever global tensions are heightened, wherever that comes from, one of the first things that people now have to look to in the modern world is where are we in terms of cyber? And clearly, without going into details, there will be a whole range of firms, not just in the financial services sector, but, but, but including the financial services sector, who are going to be paying a lot of attention to their defences right now. And as a precaution, obviously, rightly so. How prepared are firms for a major cyber outage? Obviously, this is, as you say, something that has been a potential risk for a number of years, but geopolitics has raised that up the list of priorities. It's very, very hard to generalise about that question. I mean, what I'd say, based on my past career as a regulator, is it is something that the public authorities and banks and insurers and others do regularly exercise for and do think about very seriously. 
a lot of time and effort and money goes into preparing for these things. But by the nature of the threat, it is something that needs constant vigilance. And it's something where the next avenue is always difficult to predict. So I think uh, it's probably fair to say this is something that you know the sector takes enormously seriously, our clients take enormously seriously, but it needs constant attention. Mm-hmm. Jumping now to a different topic, cryptocurrency is crypto infrastructure has grown significantly in the last 12 months and crypto markets have matured considerably over that time too. Uh, the government recently announced a series of new rules designed to make uh, the UK a crypto asset technology hub. Uh, what are your views on what the government's announced? Do you, do you think that goes far enough? So the package of measures that were announced at the Innovate Finance Global Summit, I think they show the government's intent in this space. So it's about saying, let's make the UK uh, a place where you can do business in terms of crypto. There's an early phase to this, which is around the regulation of stable coins, and then more work promised around both legislation around a DLT sandbox, and then also further regulation, potentially the crypto space. I think it is significant in terms of a signaling of intent, because I think regulators always have a choice with new technologies of whether do you regulate out? In other words, do you say, do not invest in these things? They are beyond the regulatory perimeter. You are not given any sort of cover and many jurisdictions have used that kind of messaging. Or do you decide at some point, actually, I'm going to regulate in? In other words, how do you bring something, even if it's got a degree of risk attached to it, how do you bring it into the sort of the regulatory landscape? And so we've seen with Europe and its MICA proposals, which, is, which are going through the legislative process, that's an attempt to throw arms around and provide a bit of a framework around the crypto world. We've had the SEC interpretation of its rules, particularly around custody in the US now for probably about a couple of years, and which are really, again, about trying um, to provide, at least in some parts, some kind of framework, some kind of rails on which you know, crypto can work within the wider economy. And so in that context, I think the Treasury coming out and saying very clearly, this is where we want to steer towards, even if we haven't got all the answers right now, I think is an important statement because, I mean, that clearly commits the UK towards a sort of regulating in uh, strategy. And given that whilst the numbers are still relatively in the global system, still relatively small, the fact that you do have some degree of crossover now between the crypto world and some of the existing financial world in terms of potentially trading activities run by banks and, and, and those kind of things. It's important, I think, that the landscape, the regime does adjust to be able to deal with that reality in some way. So I think it's an important signal, but there's an awful long way to go in terms of the detail. And obviously, just in reference to DLT, which you just mentioned there, that's distributed ledger technology, which is the technology which underpins some of the major cryptocurrencies. But could you explain what stable coins are for those that haven't been perhaps paying close attention to developments in these areas? Yeah, of course. So there's a theory and a practice here, but the theory at least is stable coins, for those familiar with money market funds, in many ways replicate that kind of scenario. In other words, you have a coin, a digital token, whose value is pegged to a real fiat currency in most cases. So usually it's the dollar, but it could be the euro, it could be sterling, it could be anything. And where effectively the promise held out a little bit like money market funds is if you've got a dollar token, it can be redeemed for uh, a real fiat dollar, if you like, in, in the future. Now, there are some exceptions to that, and I've massively oversimplified before all the sort of the aficionados pile in. 
but that's broadly speaking where stable coins are at the moment and certainly in terms of where i think the legislative agenda is going it's about thinking about well how do you ensure that actually if something holds itself out as being worth one of something you can be sure about that how can you be confident about that but also then what wider role might stable coins be playing in the economy okay so how should compliance executives manage crypto because from a compliance professional's point of view there are two aspects to manage really there's there's this response to the gradual institutionalization of crypto but also managing employees personal dealings in cryptocurrencies and crypto assets yeah so i think most institutions think of employees dealing on their own account in some non-regulated item if it's got some kind of financial crossover generally tend to think of it as well you're dealing in something so if we need to have a compliance interest in it we have a compliance interest in it and i think that you know it's the same for property or other types of non-regulated investment as well in, in many cases but clearly people need to think about this in a fairly sophisticated way in terms of how people might be using crypto but but that doesn't seem to pose i think many problems for certainly our clients when they're thinking about these things in terms of a conflict I mean, of interest that, point yeah so you would manage it like you manage other ones i mean and i think that's in many ways that the parallel often in this space is to say the fact that something isn't necessarily a regulated financial instrument doesn't mean you wouldn't treat it in the same way for example in terms of personal sanctions fine art expensive cars all sorts of things that aren't regulated financial instruments are, are covered by those regimes in terms of thinking about conflicts of interest i think people talk about that them, them in many other ways when it then comes to thinking about crypto within uh, a business there is generally speaking some kind of existing guidance from most regulators around the world so if you look at the reiteration that the, the, the pra made in the uk it's very much a reminder that says there are some existing rules around crypto usually in most jurisdictions that means that if you're kind of holding them somewhere on a balance sheet you've got to hold one-to-one in terms of capital against those kind of assets given their inherent sort of instability i think that landscape is going to evolve over time i mean i think the whole treasury announcement in the uk you look at the executive order in the us all of those point towards a direction of travel that says the regulatory landscape around crypto is going to become more sophisticated and more mainstream i suspect and clearly from a compliance perspective in an individual bank or an individual insurer or other 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 firm being clear about how those rules develop and keeping pace with that is going to be really important. Okay. Jumping now to a different topic. Where are we with the UK's post-Brexit reforms? Has the pace of instruction stalled a little in recent months or, or am I imagining that? This was always going to be a really, really big program. Even looking at something like the FCA's handbook alone is probably a work of five plus years to think about all the, the possible changes that could flow through post a Brexit scenario. And the Treasury and I think government in general are at the stage at the moment of really still trying to nail down these are the working parameters of how parliament, government regulators are going to interact around these new powers and the new rules that are basically being centered in the UK. There's then clearly a program of reform as well. So things that flow out the Hill Review, things that flow out the Wholesale Markets Review designed to start to change what the UK landscape begins to look like. And so I think it's probably fair to say at the moment, 
those are all works in progress. I'm not sure if you describe them as being delayed yet or not, but certainly certainly they're taking a degree of time. But in a way, I don't think any of us should find that surprising, given particularly that mechanics level of how do you replace the role that traditionally the European Parliament and other bodies played in the legislative process and then make that work in a UK context is it, genuinely complicated. And I suspect there's one of those issues where there is no one right answer. And so the government and to some extent the regulators with them are going to have to work out what they think the right answer to ultimately put before Parliament is. For reforms that cut across large sections of the financial services space, like the Wholesale Markets Review, the Future of Financial Regulations Review, are institutions within those different sectors aligned in their views as to what they want? So I think on the whole, I think with the reforms that have been put forward so far, you've seen wide acceptance within the market and wide welcoming in the market of a number of things being done that I think most market participants seem to regard as being reasonably sensible. There will always inevitably be differences of opinion, though, you know, between buy side and sell side. That would be fairly natural. So I think as the program of reforms moves on, we may see some different views begin to to emerge. But I think at the moment, the direction of travel seems to be reasonably well welcomed by by pretty much all of the certainly the clients that we talk to. I think the other thing that's probably worth drawing out is that we've seen this for some time now. There. We're all used to the idea of a regulatory pendulum, a single one that sort of swings between regulation and deregulation over time. We do seem to be in a world now where there's two. So a wholesale one that's very much focused on competitiveness, about getting funding into the real economy, about driving some of that post-COVID recovery that we alluded to earlier. And then a regulatory retail pendulum, if you like, that that if anything is moving towards more regulation, more consumer protection possibly because there are more people who are in a vulnerable condition, you know, economically because of some of the longer term Mexico. So we're seeing that play out more generally. And I think that's where you will see some differences in opinion of are these, are these positive reforms or, or not. Do those pendulums swinging in different directions pose a problem? I don't necessarily think so. I mean, I think you can have a perfectly logical policy agenda if you're the government or if you're regulators that say, There's always been a distinction between what goes on in wholesale markets, what goes on in retail markets, largely because of the sophistication of the actors on both sides of a particular transaction. And so the fact that that's possibly being deepened a bit and made even more distinct than perhaps it is today, I don't think that's necessarily an issue, but it clearly does create some potentially mixed messages in the market about the direction of travel. And I think understanding that retail wholesale split is an important part of firms thinking about how they respond more broadly to regulation. What Brexit-related challenges remain for UK financial services firms? We're in a period where, certainly for financial services, the post-Brexit world feels pretty calm and and, and pretty stable. So if you look at the the Brexit tracker that, that EY publishes, we can see that the numbers of jobs transferring to mainland Europe has effectively plateaued and leveled off. The amount of capital being transferred has also pretty much stabilized. But there are a number of issues. So, for example, the issues around clearing that have been fairly well-trodden. I mean, they remain now in a period where the decisions made by the EU entities have pushed that issue down the road, but they're still not resolved. And I suspect that will be returned to, in in probably the next 18 months or so, that, that will start to be back on the agenda again. But it certainly has gone away for some time. 
so I think for many firms, it's really that that kind of question. I think if you then look um, to some wider client questions, I mean, particularly, I think, in some of the faster growing, the fintech type environments, you will still get questions around wider issues like immigration policy, how technical talent moves around perhaps more easily and those kinds of things coming from our clients. But on the whole, I think at the moment, we're in a bit of a lull in terms of some of those wider European questions. Okay. So there may well be challenges further down the line, but right now the focus is elsewhere. Yeah, I I think that's reasonably fair. I think clearly for firms that do have very large European operations as well as their uh, large UK operation, there will always be issues that feel live. So, for example, how the third country regime works within Europe for banks and, and, and those kinds of things. So there will always be a set of live issues. But I think right now at the moment, in terms of both the level of rhetoric and the level of actual movement, either on the policy front or on the commercial front, we, we appear to be in a period of relative calm. Okay. So when you were at the Financial Conduct Authority, you championed growth in the UK's fintech sector. What regulatory changes do you think the UK's regulatory technology sector needs to see to enable them to best service the needs of the country's compliance executives? That's a really, really good question. Recently, we've been able to see the fintech sector get back together in the UK in person um, at the Innovate Finance Global Summit. And tremendous energy in the room, tremendous commitment, I think, for many, many fintech firms still towards increasing competition, increasing the range of options that are out there for consumers, and also trying to solve a number of problems in the market through the use of technology. So I think all of that is really, you can see a positive agenda still moving forward there. You obviously had the big announcement that we've already talked about from the Treasury in terms of its direction of travel on crypto. You had the FCA also saying would be supporting that through its own kind of crypto sprint sessions and still continue to use things like the regulatory sandbox and, and those kind of questions. So I think we're still operating in what can be a, a very positive environment for fintech. I, I think talking to mixture of CEOs and people working in compliance in the sector. There's a number of things I think they're, they're, they're worried about. There is definitely the question of access to talent, which is not a direct question for the regulators. Obviously, that's more towards, towards government. I mean, that comes up an awful lot in, in, in conversation. There's a question around how does the wider growth scale up part of the venture capital market really work in the UK versus often fintechs, I think, looking towards you know other markets, particularly the US sometimes, to get that really sort of mid to high scale kind of growth funding. And then questions about how do you make sure that just some of the really, really basic things that growing fast firms need, like authorizations, working swiftly, change of control, appointment of directors, all those kind of very bread and butter regulatory questions working well, just make a huge difference to the competitiveness of any one particular international environment. So obviously the government sought to lay out how it planned to build a hub for fintechs and and regtechs in the UK through its Khalifa review, which it published last Mm. year. Do do you think that goes far enough in addressing the concerns that you're hearing from those operating in that space? Or is there anything that you think that that the Khalifa review might have missed? No. So I think the Khalifa review is a fantastic piece of work. And really did set out a roadmap with all of the kind of the main components within it that I think we hear from our clients around the the fintech and the regtech market. I think really the emphasis now is on delivery of that. 
So the delivery, for example, of CFIT, the body proposed to try and really encourage forward thinking around some of these subjects. The fact also that I think, as, as, as Ron pointed out in his review, a few years from now, maybe not that long from now, we may even stop talking about fintech because it will just have become tech. And I think that increasing adoption that certainly we can see of what might have been thought of as fintech by mainstream financial services players, I mean, I think will really still drive uh, this agenda forward. But clearly, there's an awful lot within Ron's report that now is at the stage where it just needs to be delivered, be that by government, be that by regulators or, or the wider industry itself. That access to talent issue that, that you raised, I mean, that's something I keep hearing as well as being a concern amongst founders or CEOs running fintechs and regtechs. Does the Khalifa review address that or is there, is there anything that the government could be doing on top of what has been mentioned in the Khalifa review to ensure that that access to talent is there? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think they probably need to talk to the government about that one directly rather than me. But I mean, I think in terms of what you can see within the Khalifa Review, which is talking about how do you get high-skilled talent easily into the UK as very much desired immigration, if you like, in the post-Brexit world. You've got the government talking about having those kind of high talent opportunities with it to, for people to come to the UK. So, I mean, I think if, if there's one thing that I suppose I certainly hear from clients or, or those in the sort of fintech space, it is that that's all great but how long would it take to deliver some of those things? But I think the direction of travel, there seems to be broad agreement about whether the direction of travel needs to go around some of those issues. Okay. Lastly, what's one upcoming or indeed current challenge no one's talking about that you think the industry needs to pay more attention to? So I'm not sure there is a thing that's not being talked about somewhere, but in the UK context, I mean, I think how people do respond to the changing sets of economic circumstances, and obviously that's an issue that applies globally as well, but how that changes business models, I think people are beginning to talk about a bit more, but, but, but that clearly is an issue for institutions that have lived with very low rates for very long times. And so how does that, that play out? I think the other one is still, whether it's driven by COVID, whether it's driven by concerns around cyber, whatever it might be, I think in, across the globe, the op resilience agenda is still going to be really, really big with an awful lot of regulators, not just in the UK, but US, Europe, elsewhere as well. And making sure that gets enough attention and enough airtime, I think, on the board agenda is going to be really important. Okay, well, interesting. Well, perhaps we can meet again to discuss that in more detail at another point. But thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lucy. Absolutely. You. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.